0: So, um, I'm Tara (laughs) Bolger and, um, I was sitting with Dag Rowe and some others talking the week after Christmas. And he said, you know, there are a lot of things you preachers never preach on. And they were things like the Trinity predestination condemnation. I thought, well, I'll show you, we'll have a little class on it because they're difficult things to preach on. They have a huge, um, breadth and width and it would be impossible to do all that um, in 15 or 20 minutes. So my joke is complex topics in under an hour, and you should know by the title to begin with that we will not touch everything, right? There's no way that we're gonna fully talk about every bit of the Trinity or predestination in the hour we have together. So this is more like an introduction. Um, If you wanna know more, Um, I can recommend some books and that sort of thing to you. There's also a great podcast. Let's pray. Gracious God, be with us, we pray. May we hear or discover one new thing that will help us grow closer to you, or may we have our faith confirmed over again. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the Trinity. Um, There are a couple of things that I think it's important to know as kind of um, our basic operating assumptions whenever we talk about, oh, two things. There are donuts. They're right <laughs> outside this room. I will in no way be offended if you go and get them. Um, so there are a couple of things we need to remember when we are talking about theology, really. And the first is this, that all theology is an attempt to explain the unexplainable. If we were to say the most true statement of who God is, it is that God is mystery. Um, And right behind that, I would say that God is love. Um, But it is important to remember that all theology, all church doctrine is an attempt to do something that really just can't be done. We don't let that um, make it such that we don't try, right? We have to have these attempts of explaining what we see and experience. The second thing is that most theology, almost all doctrine, begins with someone's lived experience. The doctrines that we have of salvation, of the sovereignty of God, even the Trinity, is because there were people of faith who lived this experience and then wanted to put words and ideas to it in order to transmit it to someone else. So I think that's one of the reasons why whenever we read scripture, or whenever we look at certain theological doctrines, we wanna look at the context in which those words were written because usually it's the context that forces the question. And I'll say more about that in just a minute. The second thing I wanna offer you um, two ideas from Augustine. Um, The first of these is that Augustine said if you can comprehend it, it is not God. That's the idea of God's mystery. That there is always a limit to what we can comprehend and fully know. And that that's really where the majesty and mystery of God begins. Specifically about the Trinity, Augustine said, I, we talk about the Trinity, one substance in three persons. And we know that because of the limits of language, that we are not fully explaining what God is, but we still use the language because we still wanna be able to talk to each other about who God is. And we'll understand why it's important, particularly that we talk about the Trinity. But I think he does a really good job of saying to so many people, although, and also Augustine is the basis of so much doctrine, but he owns at every turn that we can't fully know God this side of the eschaton anyway, and that our words, our reason, and our ideals have limits. Um, Let me let two more people in here. I'm so sorry. Okay. Okay, so let's start with Jesus's death and resurrection. At that time, after um, Jesus's resurrection, and after he has ascended, you had a new church community. The first thing to remember about this new church community is they all identified themselves as Jews, right? I think for us, we have always seen, right, the Jewish faith to be one thing and Christian faith to be another. But for those first century Christians, that wasn't really a delineation that they made. They had grown up faithful Jews, and then they had had the experience of Christ, and now they were following in his footsteps. So I think that's one thing that's important to remember. The second is that, at, especially in the first century, and I'm going to say into the end of the first century, into the second, there were lots of communities who were trying to make meaning about who God was. Now, there are a couple of reasons for this. One is that they have just had the experience of Christ and it is so very new. And if you are going to welcome someone into this faith community, you have to know what kind of the essential tenets of it are. But I think the more important influence at this time had to do with the Greek philosophical tradition, the Greek intellectual tradition. So this is a time where, Two Roman citizens would stand on the square and they would debate and reason things out. And so the beginning of that kind of Aristotelian ideal, you know, Aristotle said that any argument that had ethos, which is the credibility of the speaker, that had pathos, that had some emotion with it, and that had logos, had logic with it, those three things can help us understand the truth of life. And so the Greek tradition was that you reasoned things out, you debated, you did it in the public square. In fact, if you had a dispute, if two of the citizens at the time had a dispute, you would go in front of the Senate and you would both present your case and reason out why. It was the beginning of of our right system. Um, And so we can't really underestimate how much of an impact. The Greek philosophical um, tradition had on that early community. Okay, so everyone's talking. Um, in particular, they are comparing themselves to other faiths, right? So now we have this idea of Jesus Christ is God and the Holy Spirit. Does that mean we now believe in three gods? And what does that mean in comparison to the world around us? Um, and so we begin to see the doctrine of the Trinity. Now here's what I think is important to remember about the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is not a revealed doctrine. Jesus Christ is a revealed doctrine. This is my son, the beloved in whom I am well pleased. We have the revelation there in scripture. And that is the doctrine of our church. The Trinity is what's called a mediated doctrine, and that means that the community started putting together the different ideas of how God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ are related, and it is mediated through the church fathers. There were some church mothers. They don't get as much attention. Um, The church fathers, uh, the matriarchs and patriarchs of the church, and it's going to eventually be mediated through Constantine and the empire, but it is the doctrine of the Trinity is the faithful early Christian followers best attempt at explaining this relationship that we see in scripture. Um, Okay. So we get to the second century and the church at this time is mainly in alexandria and the bishop of the church at that time was handily named alexander Um, alexander read the witness in the bible and alexander felt that god and jesus and spirit were all equal and they were all god okay co-equal co-eternal But there was another faction led by Arius, and Arius said that actually Jesus and the Holy Spirit are not equal to God. They are subordinate. And so you have God, and then Jesus and the Holy Spirit are below God. They're kind of um, junior partners, if you will. Um, And so this was the main debate where the church had come to see itself. There are a couple of things that are um, important here for a community that identified as Jewish. The foundational thing that they had learned in Judaism is the Shema, right? So from Deuteronomy, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, So they have identified themselves as being monotheistic. Um, If we believe that the Trinity is co-equal and co-eternal, Arius said, well, then obviously we're not, we're not monotheistic anymore. And we've heard that critique, yes, sort of in the air. Um, And so this argument is splitting the church. Yes, the church split constantly from the beginning. It's not just a modern phenomenon because people are people. Um, And so around this time, Constantine, um, who took over in 306 from his father, for the next 20 years, he fought civil war after civil war he fought battles to become the one emperor of Rome. And he does it by 326. During one of the battles, Constantine has a spiritual experience where he feels God in Christ and spirit speaking to him. And when they win the battle of Melvige, I think, um, he attributes the fact that he is one to the Christian God. And so The next few years he is growing in his faith. And when he takes over Rome, his motto is one God, one emperor, one church. And that's when you see Christianity slowly become kind of the dominant religion in that area. He allowed other religions. It wasn't necessarily a mandate, but he did things like, um, you know, outlaw the persecution of Christians. Um, He was open about his faith and his worship. And so Constantine takes a look around at his beloved church, and he sees that it is fracturing over this idea of what will become the Trinity. And so he forms the council at Nicaea. So the council at Nicaea has Alexander, um, Alexander's junior partner, (laughs) one of the local priests named Athanasius, who will take over for Alexander. We have Arius and some of his people there. And they have several things on the agenda that they're going to talk about. But the main one is how do we describe this relationship? Now, I want to say that early Christians were formed by what we now call the Old Testament witness. And Christians at this time would reread what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, through the lens of Christ. And so many of the early church fathers said, well, you know, when the three men came to Abraham in a vision, that sounds like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Now, the Jewish tradition does not say that at all, right? But when they reread, they started to see places where God would come in different personas, So, just an example, there's the one from Genesis. In the Psalms, we hear of God's word, and we hear of God's word in the idea of a different persona, a different person. We start to see that in the Psalms. In Isaiah, there is much talk about God's spirit. We know that God's spirit moved over the water in the beginning of creation. And so, as the church fathers are reading this, they agree that Jesus is not in the Hebrew scriptures, but that there is foreshadowing of what will come. Um, Another one, right? We see a lot talk about God's wisdom, the Sophia, and we see that as its own person in the scripture. So there's kind of this setting up that they can see even in the Old Testament. Augustine in particular felt strongly that the three men who visited Abraham that that was actually a Trinitarian text, that that was the beginning of it there. But the first person who really uses the name Trinity is Tertullian around 150. And the Trinity, right, is the Latin for triad. It just means three. We talk about the Holy Trinity as if it's a personal name, but it was just more of a description of what people see. So they get to the Council of Nicaea. And the question is, how do we say that God is fully hum- that Jesus Christ is fully human and fully God. It's really at the Council of Nicaea the relationship between Jesus and God that they want to tackle. There's a lot at stake here. So for instance, if there is just God and there isn't that Jesus Christ is simply human, well, then we don't have any way to adequately explain the resurrection. We lose the idea of God with us that we have been told will happen, that idea of Emmanuel. And so that's rejected in a lot of ways. Also, if Christ, I'm sorry, the opposite of that is that Christ is God, And if Christ is God without being human, how did he die on the cross? Were we able to kill God? That doesn't make sense either. And so this is the question that they grapple with. And I hope this doesn't uh, surprise you or concern you, but it's going to come down to a vote. (laughs) <laughs> right i mean most christian uh a doctrine really even our holy scripture comes down to we hear all the sides and when we have a, a a great majority of people who can confirm a certain thing we bring it into our um our polity okay So they're at the council, they're talking, Arius is making his case strongly, he's brought all of his bishops, Alexander is doing the same. Finally, um, what they agree upon is this idea called homoousius. There are two things that have to be decided. What is the essence of each person of the Trinity and what is their persona, okay? Homoousius is the idea that there are three different personas that are discrete in their own way. We have evidence of the Holy Scripture, I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit, and we are told that the Holy Spirit will come and be with us by Christ. We know we have the person of Christ and then we have the personhood of God, but homoousius says that they're all the same divine substance. One may be person one may be spirit, but they're all divine. And so that becomes the first Nicene Creed, which says that Jesus Christ is um, light from light, very God of very God, the same. Um, Athanasius, I'm sorry, um, Arius loses that vote and goes on to cause more trouble in church. <laughs> he will continue to kind of like, you know, build up factions and want to relitigate this at all at all times. But from the first council of Nicaea, this is the beginning of the fully developed doctrine of Trinity. I have talked a whole lot. Are there any questions so far? Nothing? All right. Bert, you want to correct me on anything? I'm up for it. So by the early fourth century, we're using the word Trinity. It's a part of our first uh, creed. It's actually our second creed. The first creed was the creed of Athanasius. The only difference between the creed of Athanasius and the Nicene creed is that Athanasius included a lot of negative statements like, if you don't believe this, you can't be a part of the church. (laughs) So not only did he say what we believe, but he said, what happens if you don't believe? Um, I'm glad we adopted the Nicene creed. Another argument that comes up later is the idea of modalism. This is the idea that Father, Son, and Spirit are just different modes of God. So, for instance, think of it as um, steam, water, (laughs) and ice, right? Just different modes of the same thing. But this is rejected outright because. The idea takes away the divinity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. And we attest to that over and over again. And so modalism, very much related to Arius, pops up again in that fifth or sixth century. Augustine does a lot with the Trinity. It is the foundation of his belief. In the fifth century the church again meets for another council and they again want to explain the Trinity, particularly bringing in the Holy Spirit. Do you remember your apostles creed? There's like two lines about God. There's a whole lot about our Lord and savior. And then it's, Oh yes, we believe in the Holy spirit (laughs) along with some other things. There is another council to in order to develop that. And this is where I think we really get to the idea of, why this is important. They developed this idea called perichoresis. And perichoresis is the idea that each person in the Godhead is distinct, but they are co-eternal and they are co-equal. And that when one person of the Godhead does something, when Jesus Christ dies for humanity, that is also the spirit doing that work and God doing that work. You cannot say that one does more work or only one kind of work, while the other doesn't. They are all equal. And not only that, but with perichoresis, the idea is that these, the, the God inhabits Jesus Christ out of God's great love for the world. Jesus Christ inhabits the Holy Spirit out of God's great love for the world. Do you remember what Jesus says when he tells us the Spirit is coming? I will not leave you orphaned. And so one of the main ideas of perichoresis besides this kind of um, indwelling of each of them is the idea that it all is brought into being because of love. And so we see God's love in God's self. We see God's love in Jesus Christ and we see God's love in the Holy Spirit. You cannot, after about the fifth century, talk about the Trinity without recognizing it as God's gift of love to humanity. And so before we were just talking about kind of describing it and how they came to be. Now, after the fifth century, we start to talk about its purpose. Why does it matter that we have a Trinity outside of describing who Christ is and who the Holy Spirit is? So I'm gonna move us forward many, many centuries. We're gonna end up in the 20th century with Karl Barth. And Karl Barth had this idea that in God, we often see two what are sometimes competing ideas brought together in the person of the Trinity. So for Barth, what you see in the Trinity is perfect freedom. God, nor Christ, nor the spirit has to do anything. They don't have to come to humanity. They don't have to do anything. They're deities. And so they have, the Trinity has perfect freedom, but they also come to us anyway out of perfect love. And so Karl Barth said, anytime you're going to talk about the character of God, the character of the son or the character of the Holy Spirit, you have to recognize that God uses God's perfect freedom and perfect love to come to humanity. All right. Any thoughts on that? I'm a terrible lecturer. Yes, Bob. One
1: thing that's always bothered me that i with is when Jesus on the cross and he says, My God, my God, my God, I'll you. I mean, you know, talking to himself, talking, you know, in a really good distance. I don't know. Yeah.
0: Well, also that's scripture, yes, that is the Psalms. That is a Psalm of lament. And so it is possible that Jesus utters that because that was his Jewish faith tradition. It also connects the old Testament with the new, right? That Jesus would bring those words into that moment. But the bottom line is, I don't know. <laughs> right. We don't know, is it, we know that at that point, the part of Jesus that is fully human is going to die. And it would make sense that he would cry out with these words of faith that he has learned in the synagogue as a boy. Um, There are also some, let me make sure I got this right. Some scholars feel like even to the very end, Jesus was living his life as an example for us, and that we too may be a people who feel that God has forsaken us, and we may feel it so deeply it feels like a death, and we can cry out to God. One of the things I love about the Psalms in particular is that for Judaism, to cry out to God in anger or in pain is always an act of faith. Right. We in the Christian tradition, we seem to like to think that we're only going to tell the good stuff. You know what I mean? We're going to only going to offer prayers of praise. But the Jewish tradition says, even if you cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a faith statement because you are taking your life to God. And so some think that even to the end, Jesus is modeling that kind of humanity that is faithful, even on the cross. Does that help at all? <laughs> Thank you for humoring me with that. Yes. Um,
1: and, um you know, Jesus says, You know, you're, you can only get your father mm-hmm. or, can father, the, right the father for me, or you can say the apostles created sit on the right hand of God, right? So it's tough to think then that there's, I'm just there. There's, and we talk about God, we talk about the father because i Trinity. trying to talk about God it's not not say that the father I think it's, it's one yeah so I, think, I think that's it's really confusing
0: so uh, you know I I talk with a lot of people um, and a lot of times people who are not a part of a church community will say I've had this said to me several times you know I'm okay with god I'm pretty solid on god and I believe in the holy spirit it's Jesus who gives me trouble. And I will tell you 10 times out of 10, what they mean is someone has told them about a Jesus that doesn't always reflect the love and care of Jesus Christ. But to that, I would say you're actually just fine with Jesus because Jesus is the Holy Spirit and Jesus is God in the same way that God is Jesus. So It is possible to read that statement in a Trinitarian way. None come to the father, except through me. Um, that's God, right? You come close in the person of Christ, but that's also you come close in the Holy spirit. None come to the father, except through the Holy spirit. And I do think all salvation is the work of the Holy spirit. So I think that's one place where, um, where the trinity helps us and builds us up in our faith um, because we are human and in our simpleness we sometimes twist uh, who jesus is or what the tenets are but we look back to this model of the trinity and see that it is always self-giving and it is always love out of god's perfect freedom i will tell you about my first heresy in seminary. Um, I remember clearly, uh, the, our pastor before I ever worked in the church, Brian and I read a Bible study. And I remember our pastor saying at the time, you know, I get in a lot of trouble for this, but God is God and the son is the son. And I was like, well, that totally makes sense. Right. I mean, in our house, the father's the father, the girls are the girls, you know, I mean, that's, that's a kind of subordination, right. And so I go to seminary and I say that out loud in some class and everyone's like, no, 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 no. (laughs) There is no subordination. It is co-equal and co-eternal. And I think that that's really important for Christian community. We should be less focused on hierarchy, on who is subordinate and who is in charge, and instead should model the self-giving love of the, tr- of the Trinity, right? That came to serve, that came to give for others. That out of our freedom that we have, we are also called to love. And that that is where our focus is as people who believe in the Holy Trinity. Does that make sense? Oh, just a comment. That is a- <clears throat>
1: You know, it's really—it's actually really comforting to hear that the Nicene Council mm-hmm. made decisions by a vote. Yep, because it just makes uh, makes me feel better about how we make decisions and how like decisions are made in my life. You know, yes, there's the fact that like God didn't just show up and write it down himself; in reaction actually people struggling mm-hmm. through a difficult time and came to this it's, i don't
0: know it's yeah it is for me too and it's the idea that um you know now we see through a glass darkly then we will see face to face we are all christian pilgrims trying to listen to god's calling and leading as best we can and the thing i love about the reformed tradition is there are also times when we have to back up and say we really got that one wrong right we really got that one wrong Our confession of 1964, which was written in the wake of the civil rights movement is so very beautiful to me because it owns in that confession that we've done a lot of things wrong in terms of race relations. And we are recommitting ourselves to where God is calling us to live with some sort of racial equality, however we can do it. So it's a comfort to me too. Um, And in a lot of ways, right? The doctrines that stand today have stood the test of time and a faithful people re-examining them, seeing if this still makes sense to the way we read the Bible and that sort of thing. And I think that's hugely important too, and a comfort. So I think as Christians, we have to be people who are led by God's spirit to make the best statement we can about our beliefs. And we also have to be people who constantly discern and own when we've gotten it wrong. So... What else? Yes, sir, Roy.
1: In in the Old Testament, God refers to Himself one time as "I am," and then in the New Testament, Jesus uses the same phrase when He identifies Himself as "I am." Yep. Um, But uh, what do you think of that? Is that a or is that?
0: No, and I think that Jesus, knowing his divinity, used those specific words um, for that specific purpose, to let people know who he was. Um, No one, I think, really explains this better than the prologue to John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through him. Without him, not one thing came into being. John's gospel was written last. He had a hundred years of Christ's ministry and reflection on it. And so when he comes to write his prologue, he is able to own what has been foreshadowed in the old Testament. And that is that God sent Jesus who is God. And we also have that same entity in the Holy spirit with us still. There are a lot of places in the Old Testament where we feel like there is foreshadowing and speaking to um, the idea of the Trinity. But again, if you go and look up Trinity in your Bible, you're not going to find that anywhere because it's a mediated
1: doctrine. So to so the, 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 like the Council of Nicaea, uh-huh. did, did they use our current New Testament text in their conversation too?
0: So I don't, the canon was not fully formed, but they certainly leaned heavily on Paul's writings and on the four gospels. Yeah, but we did, it wasn't fully formed at that point. But that biblical witness is in almost every part of the Nicene Creed. Yeah. And we have in Matthew, what's the great commission? Go out and make disciples of all nations in the name of, the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. There's no subordination there. It is all one thing. So even though you can't go to your concordance and find the word Trinity, (laughs) I do think that it's in there and especially in the lived experience that we have. What else? I have more, (laughs) I know. I, you're really shocked to hear that, but um there is you write uh centuries of Christian witness on this.
1: But then we try really hard to use um, at least I try that I actually generalize, to, to use um non-gender specific pronouns to talk about God. How does that correlate with the vernacular of the father? Is that just yeah. the historical vernacular, or how do we balance?
0: Okay. So first I'm going to own that, uh, patriarchal male language in the Bible doesn't bother me. And I'll just say that, right. And we're going to answer the question, but I want you to know that's my operating bias. I don't have a problem with it. I don't know why. Um, but, but so I want to own that before I answer it. The second thing is that, you know, we have people talk about the Trinity as creator, redeemer, sustainer, which takes all of that language out of it. I don't like that because it's not true to the biblical witness, right? Jesus calls God, the father, Jesus characterizes that relationship. And I think that's important. Um, We all carry baggage to language, You know what I mean? I think one of the reasons that that kind of male language doesn't bother me is because I'm obviously female and I'm sharing the word of God, right? So it's a non-issue, but there have been discussions about making it more neutral with creator, redeemer, sustainer. Um, But I fall into the camp of, you know, Jesus called on God, the father, and we are given the Holy Spirit. If we wanted to be really technical, right? We could use the feminine word Sophia for Holy Spirit, which is all throughout the Old Testament. Um, But I think those are the two camps on that. Anything else? Yes, sir.
1: In your opening remarks, you mentioned that theology was an attempt to explain the unexplainable. Yeah. But it seems to me that when the Nicene Council of Together, they were using a risk of team uh, mm-hmm. logic to basically tamp down conflict that was going on at the time. So it's almost like saying, if you, if you put it to a vote, you're basically saying that because I said so, the rest of you can just sort of stand down, but you're not necessarily, uh mm-hmm. you're still trying to explain something that's. Unexplainable.
0: Yes. And I think, well, I think there are a couple of things. One is that that Aristotelian ideal, they didn't choose to operate in that kind of way. It was just in the water, right? In the same way that it is for us in a lot of ways. Um, it was just how you did things. They grew up seeing this kind of philosophy played out and debated in the public square. And so it makes sense to them that they would then bring it to these issues. Um, I also think that we can't underestimate um, how much people respected their church fathers. And so to have your bishop struggle for decades over this issue and to lead in this creed, when it finally came, there was trust in that leadership in a way that I don't think is misplaced in any way. But I do think that if you were to, uh, this is purely conjecture, but I'm betting Alexander knew more than anyone about the mystery of God, right? I think they would have owned that themselves, but we don't let our deficiencies mean that we don't talk about and develop our ideas about who god is god is that important for us to struggle with it does that work (laughs) what other questions do we have is there a person of the trinity who speaks to you more than another either
1: now or has in the past Yes. Yep. God Jesus is so
0: Yes. Are you serious? I don't want to hear myself one more minute. Let's hear you. I'm sorry. Is that Jesus was what perfectly born from the Holy Spirit. Yes, you can say that, particularly with the Old Testament um, witness, right? Because we believe that God's wisdom is Word, and that Christ is the Word made flesh. Um, in the Nicene Creed, in particular, though, it says that the Holy Spirit proceedeth from the Father and from the Son. And so they are relying on that biblical witness that shows that the spirit is there, but that at a certain point in time, we were given the spirit for God's work in the world after Jesus's ascension. But um, yes, I think you could, you could make that argument.
1: No, come on.
0: Anything else? All right. So I try to think about, especially after I've rambled for so long,
1: what I want to leave you with. And I think the first is that
0: when we talk about any part of the Trinity, we're talking about all of the Trinity. Okay. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit speaking into the world, we're talking about Christ. We're talking about God. They are the same thing in different personas. Um, That is important because we are called to live out that kind of equality and love and freedom in our own lives. Um, We are called to be people who um, give over and over again out of our freedom and out of our love. And we see that modeled in the Trinity. If it were strictly God is God with God's junior partners, then that would mean we are called to live a life of hierarchy, right? And I don't think that's what we're called to. It's what happens a lot of times, but we are called to recognize the equality and, um, you know, humanity of each person and offer love and grace into that the same way that God has. So I think that's all I have for you. Anything else? That was so far under an hour. Um, Next week, we're gonna talk about
1: predestination. So I hope you'll join us for that.